I want you to think about hobbies that you've pursued in your life at some point. I want you to think about what spurred you to have this hobby. I'm guessing, I'm sure, if you're anything like me, that it had first started with an attraction for that hobby. You know, for me, it was golf. Uh, In high school, I started playing golf. I started, I borrowed some clubs from one of my coaches and went to the uh, the course and started swinging. And I had an attraction to play golf. I was not good at it, but I had to, as you do in hobbies, I had to learn. I had to learn about the hobby that I was attracted to because I wanted to be good at it. I wanted to spend time and effort honing my skill at my hobby. I also needed to invest in my hobby. You know that any hobby that you partake in, you're going to have to begin investing in it. You want to know that you're going to, if you're going to be any good at what you want to do in your hobby, you're going to have to invest. You're going to have to invest time. That means you're going to have to spend weekends investing in your hobby. You're going to have to spend hours on the weekend practicing what you're doing. You're also going to have to invest money. It's going to cost money to be really good at the hobby that you are pursuing. And it's going to take a lot of effort. You're going to be pretty bad at it at first. You're not going to be great at it. And so you're going to take all this time, all this effort, all this money, and you're going to pour it into a hobby. You're going to practice, you're going to practice, and you're going to practice. And then here's what happens with most people's hobbies. This word, distracted. You become distracted, and your hobby kind of takes a backseat to life. Uh, maybe uh, your job is asking more of you than it used to. Uh, maybe your children have uh, some stuff going on. Maybe you have to spend more time in their education because COVID, and you're having to school them at home. Uh, maybe some family problems have come up. Some, you have to take care of your mothers, your fathers. You have to take care of your grandparents because they're sick. And your hobby begins taking a back seat to your life. And then you forget about it. You throw the clubs in the closet. You throw the bedazzling machine in the back room. And you, you just forget about it. You forget about it. But every now and then, you know what comes to mind? You know what? I want to go bedazzle my jeans. So you go and you pull it out and you realize, you know, I'm not really good at this. Or me, I pull the clubs out of my closet because my friends want to go play golf. And I remember just how bad I am at golf because I just forgot about it. I didn't continue spending that time I needed to, but I just went every now and then. That's what happens oftentimes to our hobbies. But here's the great thing. No one's bashing hobbies. That's actually the great thing about a hobby is that it's not essential for your everyday life. Hobbies are fun activities that you can participate in because you want something to do on your off time. But your relationship with God is not a hobby. So your relationship with God is more than a hobby, and it takes time and effort and love and commitment. And that's Paul's point in Philippians 1, 7 through 11. You can go ahead and flip there. That's where we're going to be tonight. You can open your Bible there, your computer. If not, we have a handout on your table with that scripture reference, and you can follow along there. But what Paul wants you to know is that your love for God should lead you every day, not just on the weekends, not just the extra time that you have during the week, but it should lead you every day to engage in the work that God has for his church and for the church's leaders. You hear that? That means you need to be engaging regularly in the work of the local church 
in the work that God has called your pastors and leaders to. As well as let this love for God empower you to defend and confirm the gospel what every day in your own life. See, that's what love for God, that's what a growing love for God does. That when, when God becomes more than a weekend activity or an every now and then activity, you begin taking part in the beautiful work that God has for his church and that it empowers you to be bold in your own life to take part in it and defend it and confirm it for your friends. And it's because of this. It's because that you know that God is the witness in your actions and that witness that God has for your trust in him that witness that you have in God for those who are faithful to him will lead to your vindication at the day of Christ. You get that? That your life and your love for God as it grows and the work that you're doing in Christ will serve because God is our witness. One day we're all going to stand before God and he's going to be your witness to say, you are faithful to me. You trusted me. You lived your life for me. And that will serve as your vindication. That will serve as the proof that you are in Christ, the proof that God had saved you. And so when you're standing before God on the day of Christ, you are going to be vindicated because of your trust and your love for God and the work that he has done in you. And that's why Paul, in this moment in Philippians, that's why Paul, although he is in prison, although he's been abused and mistreated in his prison in Rome, that he can sit with joy chained to a guard and pin this letter to the Philippians because of this, because his love for God and his companionship with the Philippian church. You see that? His partnership with other Christians and his love for God allowed him to be joyful in all of his circumstances. Read along with me. In Philippians chapter 1, starting verse 7. Paul says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul talks a lot about feelings. Paul talks a lot about how he's feeling in his heart towards God and, and towards other Christians, these other Christians in Philippi. But in verse 7, he, uses, he says this phrase, it is right for me to feel this way about you. We have to separate our term feel in our current culture in the 21st century to what Paul means when he's saying that it is right for me to feel this way. What way is he talking? Well, he, we said it last week that it's right for him to feel that God is going to complete the work that he's doing in them. That it's right for him to love them because of the work that they're doing with him for the gospel. So he's looking at them saying, it's right for me to feel this way because I am sure. I'm sure that God's going to complete what he's doing in you because I see your faithfulness to him. And I know that God is faithful. And so when he uses the word feel, he's not just saying, you know, I think you know, this is just the way I feel today. I think that this is what's going to happen. He's like, no, I feel this way. I have this attitude regarding you. So he's saying my attitude regarding you is that I know that God's going to finish what he has started in your life. I know that I love you and I care about you because this is my attitude. This is my disposition. This is the view that I hold on to strongly. So it's not just a flippant emotion that Paul is saying to the Philippians. He is saying, this is my attitude towards you, that I feel this way about you. Why? 
He says it here, because I hold you in my heart. Heart, that's the Greek word cardia, which just means heart. So he's saying, I feel this way. I have this attitude, this disposition towards you because I hold you closely to my heart. Why? Next phrase, for you are all partakers with me of grace. Partakers, there's that word that we saw last week, kononia, right? This is a different a version of that word here, sig kononos, right? Sig kononos, right? Same word, different type. He's saying this partnership that we have, now we are both partakers with Paul in grace. That's what he's saying to the Philippians, that they are partakers with Paul of grace. But what does he mean when he uses that word grace? For you are all partakers with me of grace. Well, he means two things. One, he is saying this, that you are partakers with me in grace because I'm in prison and you have given me something. You are partaking in my ministry by supplying my needs. That's what Paul is saying. He's like, we are a koinonia. We are a community. We are partaking. We are a fellowship, a community. And you are communing with me by making sure that I am taken care of, that I am God's apostle. This is what Paul is saying to them, that God, God, Paul is God's apostle. And because of that, the Philippian church is taking care of his needs. So that's part of what he means. For you are all partakers with me. A grace means this, that you are aiding me. You are taking care of me in my imprisonment. We would look at it this way. If uh, a missionary, we, we uh, partake in our missionary lives here in uh, Compass Bible Church, right? We partner with missionaries all over the world. So think of it that way. When he says that you are all partakers with me of grace, what he's saying is, is you are supporting me on my mission. Just like we support uh, missionaries all across the world. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, thank you for supporting me in the mission that God has given me. But there's also Another way that the Philippians are partaking of the grace that Paul is talking about, and it is this, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. See, he uses those words on purpose, the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Why? Because Paul is in prison. He's about to go before the officials in Rome and give a defense for why he is in prison to give a defense of why he is in change. And we know why he's in change, don't we? Because of the gospel. He is in change because he is preaching the gospel of grace. And so he's saying this, that you're partnering with me in that too, because this very thing that I'm doing, that I'm being persecuted for, is the very thing that you guys are doing as well. So when he is saying, you are partakers with me, you are, you are this, you are not just partaking, you are a partner with me in this grace. You are a sharer with me in this grace, which means this, that Paul's saying, you are supporting me and we are both working together arm in arm to take the gospel to a lost world. And yes, we may be suffering. Yes, we may be under trial, but we are going to defend and confirm the gospel. And so what Paul is saying to them, he's saying, it's right for me to feel this way because you and me are working for the Lord. You and me are doing the work of God together. We are sharers in this work of God. And so that means that you and I, we need to engage in the work of God. And that's point number one. You need to engage in the work of God. And that's, that's why Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians. It's a thank you letter for their missionary support for Paul. And throughout this whole letter, Paul is saying, thank you guys for your partnership in the gospel. I am praying for your partnership in the gospel. This whole time, Paul is just commending them for their partnership with him, the gospel. And that's the reason last week we talked about that koinonia, that their fellowship was in the gospel alone. 
That's why you are here in our church is for the gospel alone, that fellowship we have. And Paul is saying, continue engaging in that work. Engage in that work because that's why you and I exist. I think of scriptures like Ephesians 2.10. You can jot that down. Ephesians 2.10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you want to talk about engaging in works. Like we were created to engage in works. That was our entire created order before the fall and then even after fall through our redemption that God has good works for us to do. And here's the wonderful part. You don't have to go looking for them. God says he has prepared them beforehand. God has prepared these works beforehand. And what do you need to do? Walk in them. Walk in the good works that God has called you to do, that he has placed before you, beforehand because you are his workmanship you were created in christ for these good works so walk in them so engage in the work of god that he has created for you to do that means if you are treating god like a hobby you have an entire misconception of who god is and what he wants in your life god wants every day every minute every investment of your life focused on him not just the weekends and not just the evenings and you can't engage in the work of god if you're only doing it on the weekends You can't engage in the work of God if you're only here on a Friday night. You have to engage in the work of God and understand what God calls us to do. Another verse you want to jot down is Matthew 7, verse 21. This is a piercing verse when it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but who? But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. See, Listen to that. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. If you want to know why it's important to engage in the work of God, because it's only those people who are going to heaven. It is those people who do the will of God who will be with him for eternity in heaven. We're not talking about a works-based faith. We're not saying if you do enough good things, God is going to say, thumbs up, you're in. We're saying because Christ died for us, took the wrath of God. This is what we talked about last week, right? That's why the gospel of grace is important, that we have peace with God through the blood of Christ. And now because we're saved, we're going to work. Because we're saved, we're going to engage in these works of God. Why? Because we're saved, we actually know what they are. A lost person doesn't know what the will of God is. A person who isn't saved doesn't know what the works of God are or how to engage in the work of God. But if those who are in Christ... So we will enter the kingdom of heaven because we do know the will of the Father and we're going to do it and we're going to engage in it. The final verse here is verse, or John chapter 9, verse 4. John chapter 9, verse 4 says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. So Jesus is saying, you need to do the work of God right now. You need to engage in the works of God right now because there's going to come a time where there are no more works of God. God's going to complete it all. Paul says it here, it's the day of Christ. When when Christ returns, there is going to be no more work. The time's up for you. And so it's time today, while it is day, to do the works of God, to engage in the works of God, because there's going to come a time when no one can work. And so it's important for us now, the imminence is important right now, that today, right now, we need to stop, if you are, engaging in God as a hobby and live for him as though he is God, who he truly is. And so let's work while it is day. And how do you apply that? How, what does that mean for you? If you're going to engage in God's work, if you're going to know what God's will is, if you're going to 
and take part in God's work while it is day, then you need to quit treating God as though he is a hobby. God's not a weekend activity. That's not who God is. And so you say, how can I engage in God's work? Well, one, why don't you start serving your church? Why don't, why don't you start serving the people of God? The best way that you're going to understand God's will is when you're around people who are living in God's will. And so maybe before you leave here tonight, you ask the question, how can I serve here? How can I serve in God's church so I can start learning what it means to engage in the work of God? Secondly, you can support your church financially. Before you put stoppers in your ear right now, let me tell you the whole point of the, this letter to the Philippians. So what Paul says in Philippians 4, 18 through 19. This is what Paul says. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. This whole letter is a thank you letter because the Philippians supported him financially with goods and the things that he needed. And so this whole letter is about financially supporting God's people. And so for us as Christians, if you're not, you are called in Scripture over and over and over again to support your church financially, to make sure the needs are met for your church family and take care of them. And that's what Paul is doing right now, thanking them for doing that. So the Philippians knew this, and that's what it means to engage in the work of God, partly that you need to be financially supporting your church. And lastly, that means you need to be a messenger and an ambassador to the works of God. If you're going to engage in the work of God, that means you need to understand what it means to be a messenger. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 20. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 through 20 say this, that in Christ we were reconciled, God not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us what? The message of reconciliation. We were entrusted a work, right? The work is messenger, you and I, we are messengers. We are, we are mailmen for God. We have a message that we have to deliver to everyone. And this message is a message of reconciliation. That God has made a way through the blood of Christ, through the cross, to reconcile us to him. And that's why it says this, Therefore, in verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is one of the most amazing phrases, right? God making his appeal through us. As if God had to use you and me to make his appeal. But he chose to because he has a work for us to do, a work that he has created beforehand for you and I to walk in. That he is making his appeal through us as Christians. God who created the universe, whose voice thunders through the clouds throughout the entire Old Testament, has now decided to use you and I as vessels to carry the message of reconciliation. So if you want to know what it means to engage in the work of God, you have to know what it means to be a messenger and an ambassador. And you need to carry that with the utmost priority in your life, not as a hobby, but as a lifestyle. That's who you are. You are an ambassador. So engage in that work. See, Paul's reason for engaging in God's work is made evident in the first phrase of verse 8. Look at, look at verse 8. That first phrase cannot be overstated. For God is my witness. Why do we engage in the work of God? Why do we, why do we live every day trying to focus on God? Because it's God who is our witness. Paul's still playing on this uh, courtroom 
this courtroom picture, right, that he has to give a confirmation, that he has to confirm and defend the gospel. And he's saying, but God is my witness. See, I'm going to have to stand before the tribunal, but I'm going to tell you this. I'm not my own witness. You aren't my witness, but God is my witness. God's going to vindicate me because I'm doing what God has asked me to do. And so he, he says that in verse 8, for God is my witness. And the question is that you have to ask yourself, do you feel confident to have God stand as your witness? I mean, when you are living your life, you look back right now, just look back at the last week. I mean, if you had to stand before God, would you feel very good about the work that you engaged in for God? Could you look at God and say, God, you as my witness know that I live for you this week. That God, you as my witness, you've seen how I poured my life out for the confirmation and for the defense of the gospel. How I was a messenger and an ambassador for you, and I engaged in the work that you have for your church. Because that's what we are all going to have to do. One day we're all going to have to stand before the tribunal of God. And God gets to be the judge of the life that you live for him. So that's how serious we need to take this when, God, when Paul says, God is my witness. What Paul is saying is, I have lived the kind of life where God could be my witness and I'm not ashamed about it. But this is what he says next. So God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. See, there's one of those feely words again, right? Affection, one of those feely words. Well, if you're an old timer or you're very traditional, maybe you've heard it this way in the King James Version. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you in all the bowels of Jesus Christ. Interesting, right? We, the ESV uses the word affection. Um, the King James Version uses the word bowels. So with all the bowels in him, right, that, that's how he longs for the Philippians. Now that word, which I'm sure we've heard before if, if you've been here at Compass, is splachnon, right? So it's like my guts, right? The, the inward parts of my body. And so it's not just a touchy-feely word. You don't you know, you text your, your boyfriend or your girlfriend, hey, I, you know, I just, I yearn for you with all the splechnon in my life. But that's what Paul's saying, because it's not just a feeling. Paul's saying, listen, deep within me, I long for you. It's, it's, it's a deep word, inward attitude towards you as Christ's people that for God is my witness, I yearn for you with this deep inward longing. Why? Guys, you guys want community. People want to be cared about, right? You want to be longed for. Well, you have this opportunity as Christians to be partakers, right? To be koinonia. That's what we talk about. To be partners in the gospel. And how much more can you have community than in the gospel? Right? That's what Paul is saying right here. Listen, we are one in the gospel, you and I, we are one, and I long for you with that because our mutual interest is in loving God. You are never going to have a more significant, intimate, close relationship with anyone or anybody in the whole world more so than the relationship you're going to have with people who are genuinely in Christ, people who are saved. And that's what Paul is, is saying here, that he yearns for them with all the affection of Christ Jesus and if you want that, if you want that kind of community, you only find that in the community of Christ, in a community of people who love God. But what that means is we have to live for God, not for your salvation, but because you have salvation. And that means this, that you need a number two, live knowing God is your witness. You need to live knowing God is your witness. It doesn't matter, uh, it doesn't matter who's not living for God. It doesn't matter how much people have talked to you, uh, talked against you for living for God, but you have to know that one day, that you're going to stand before God, 
But today that you're actually living in front of God, everything that we do, God sees. There's nothing that escapes the view and the perspective of God. I think of scriptures like Jeremiah 29, 23. Write this down because this is an important, important verse. It's in the Old Testament, so the context I'll have to share with you. But it's a vivid picture of how God sees the just and the unjust and how he punishes the unjust because he is always present. He's always the witness in Jeremiah 29, 23, it says, because they have done an outrageous thing in Israel. He's talking about these false prophets who lied, claimed they were from God, and they weren't. That's, that's the background of this. People who lied. People who were bad witnesses before God and his people. Because those people have done an outrageous thing in Israel. They have committed adultery with their neighbor's wives, and they have spoken in my name lying words that I did not command them. I am the one who knows. I am witness declares the Lord. So God's saying, listen, don't worry, I know. He's, I know how they were living. I was there. And God is everywhere. God knows how we all are living, and he's witness to every deed, good or bad, that ever happens. 1 Thessalonians 2.10 is another verse. 1 Thessalonians 2.10, where Paul's writing to the Thessalonians, and he says, you are our witnesses, and God also. So I, I picked this first because I want you to see, we know what it means to be a witness. You know what it means you, if you go to court and you have to be a witness, you have to stand before the jury, you have to stand before the defendant, the plaintiff, the plaintiff, and you have to give your witness. It's easy for us to see because it's tangible. You can watch it on Law & Order, you can watch it on TV, Netflix, you can even see it if you go to jury duty, okay? But in that same way, in that same way that you can be a witness as a human being, it says, and God also. So in that same very tangible way, God is also a witness. And here in a good way, right? How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. So Paul's saying it's important because God knows God, as God is witness, how blameless and holy we live before you. See, so is, that, is that the way you live? Do you live knowing God is witness to how holy and blameless that you are living before others? Because if you're not, this is a great day to change your perspective and understand that maybe you don't need to have road rage, right? Maybe you don't need to say that four-letter word that came to your mind because you were mad at somebody. You know, maybe that does mean you need to turn that show off, turn that movie off, turn that video off. It's not glorifying to God because as God is witness, how holy and blameless you are living or how corrupt and evil you're living, right? So that's why it's important that we understand that we got to live knowing God is our witness, and then finally, Romans 1, 9, Romans 1, 9 says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing, with ceasing I mention you. I love this, because Paul, again, talking to the church in Rome, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. I mean, that, right, that's the life that we all want to live, right? For God is my witness. God sees that every day that I serve him with my spirit in the gospel, that every day that we serve God, in our lives, with the gospel of Christ. See, that's our desire, is that we live knowing that God is our witness, that we engage in the work of God, which is the gospel, and we do it together. That means this, you need to please God in your actions. Can you, can you write that? Just You need to please God in your actions, because he's seeing them. It's simple, it's applicable, that every action that you make needs to be pleasing to God. Like you need to stop whatever you're doing and think, is this pleasing to God? And you need to check, is it either a yes or it's a no? If it's a no, don't do it. If it's a yes, by all means, for the glory of God, do it. 
And you need to base your decisions on God's presence, not your feelings. Get that? Because we know that God is always there. He's always a witness, right? In the good and the bad. But sometimes we get it all on our emotions and all our feelings, right? And we make decisions that aren't glorifying to God because we're in our feelings. But if we can take a moment in those feelings to realize that God is there, present, it'll change your perspective on how you view the way that you decide to live knowing God is your witness. Know God is your witness. He's right here. God is right here present. You have an opportunity to make a really bad decision. You wouldn't do it if your mom was there. You wouldn't do it if your grandma was there. So you probably shouldn't do it knowing God is there. It's a really simple way to look at it. And this, if you're wronged, God sees it. Know that. We, talked, we preached that in James all last semester, right? That if you're wronged, God sees it. And God is going to be the judge of that, right? Other people are going to have to stand before God who have wronged you and try to defend and confirm what they did. And if, it's not, if they're not trying to defend and confirm the gospel, they're not going to stand before God justified, it's only, uh, it's only those of us who stand before God, justified in Christ, who are living their lives out for the gospel, who will stand justified and vindicated before God. So it doesn't matter if you've been wrong. It doesn't matter if you've been hurt. What matters is, are you living for God? Or are you engaging in the work of God? Because that's going to be your vindication. Your, your revenge is not going to help. Your revenge is not glorifying to God. Just let it go and focus on the work that God has for you. It's important to know that God is your witness. I, I was watching TV the other day. I love, I love crime shows. And in, in this crime show, I'm, we're in a courtroom because they got convicted, uh, wrongly convicted, but convicted all the same, for those of you who have been wronged here. Uh, and uh, the wrong victim is, 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 is standing up there, answering for what he did, saying, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. Uh, and the jury is convinced that there's a murderer. Uh, and then towards the end, Somebody comes in and says, I got new evidence. Sits it down to the judge. The judge looks at it and says, I'll take it. And that evidence is the vindication of the person sitting there about to be put on death row for murder. In that same way, that's the way that we look as Christians, right? The world's going to look at us, say they're condemned. Those people are good for nothing. They would be better rotting in jail like Paul is, right? But Paul's saying, listen, whether I live, whether I die, I'm living for Christ. He's like, because God is my witness. Because I know whether it's here on earth and somebody walks up to Rome to the officials and say, hey, he's exonerated. Paul didn't do anything wrong. Paul's saying, that'd be great. That'd be awesome. But Paul says, even if they don't, God is going to be my witness. Because in eternity, I'm going to stand before God in the same courtroom and Christ is going to stand in front of me and say, this guy has been found in me, righteous and vindicated. And that's the life that we need to live. Do we want to be vindicated right here, right now? Sure, that'd be great if you could. But that's not what we're working for. That's not what you're working for. You're working knowing that God is your witness. Knowing at the end of the day, you don't need people to stand by your side. You need to make sure that it's God who is by your side. And that's why Paul is saying, for God is my witness over and over again in Romans and the Thessalonians, here in Philippians, that Paul wants all the churches to know that it's important that you live your life knowing that God is your witness. And then finally, starting in verse 9, Paul makes six points in his prayer. He's about to pray for the Philippians. He's about to write a letter, and he's, about, he's starting to pray for them. And he makes six important points that you might want to write down in his prayer. Number one, the first one is this, that your love of God may abound more and more. See, in verse 9 it says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. What does that mean, that your love may abound more and more? Is he just using another emotional word here? 
He hasn't yet, so why would he now? See, he uses this word that we all know, agape, right? This agape love, it refers to the love of God. And this word epitomizes the act of sacrificial love of God. And so when he's saying, it is my prayer that your love may abound more than one more, he's saying that your love of God may abound more and more, that your love of God may grow exceedingly, abundantly, more and more. That's, that's his first point. And it's important because it's his primary focus in this prayer, that everything else is going to be predicated on the fact that your love for God must be growing every day. And your love for God can't grow every day if you're not living for God every day. If God is a hobby on the weekends, your love for God's not going to grow. So your love of God must abound more and more, point number one. And then point number two, it must grow with knowledge and discernment. You see, that's not usually a, a phrase. Those aren't two words that usually accompany the word love in the English language, right? You don't look at somebody you have a crush on and say, I love you with all the knowledge and discernment. You don't do that, do you? You probably should, right? You'd make better decisions. That's, what, that's why Paul says this, that your love for God needs to grow and abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. Because it's with knowledge and discernment that you're going to learn how to live for God. And it's with knowledge and discernment that you're going to understand what's pleasing to God. And so you're going to love God more and more and more and more, is what Paul is saying. And you're going to do it with knowledge and discernment. And with that knowledge and discernment, you're going to make good choices, which is going to cause you to love God more and more and please God more and more. Right? So you're going to love God more and more with knowledge and discernment in three, point three, so that you may approve what is worthy so that you may approve what is worthy. Verse 10 says that you may approve what is excellent. And that word excellent, diaphero, means what is worth more than. So you can put it this way, so that you may approve what is worth more. So you got options in front of you, but your love for God as it is growing, you're going to have knowledge and discernment that's also going to be growing, so that now you're left with options, you can say, well, this is more worthy. This is okay, but this is more worthy. And so you're going to choose that. That's what Paul's saying, that I hope your love for God grows. I pray that your love for God grows so that you have knowledge and discernment so that you can approve, you can choose what is more worthy, what is better, because that's our job as a Christians to choose the worthy, the most worthy things in our lives in this world and go after those. Why? Point four, so you can be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. I love this. Follow along with Paul's thought here in his prayer. It's amazing. I pray that your love of God may grow more and more and more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you can approve what is the most worthy. So you can choose what is the most, most worthy. So, so that you can be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. See, that's our glory, right? That it's, it's Christ. It's that we can live so that one day when Christ comes, we can stand here as a worker, not ashamed, and say, we're, we grew in our love for you, God, that we grew in our knowledge and discernment of you. We approved what is worthy, and we went after it. We ran after what was worthy, and now we can stand before you pure and blameless because we both have a relationship with you, and we decided to live like we were in a relationship with you. You see, people often push back and say, well, if I'm in Christ, then I am pure and blameless. Yeah, but how sick would a person be if they knew Christ and never lived for him? That's somebody who never knew Christ at all. So it's important for us that if you truly know Christ, that you're going to live for him. There is no other option. I mean, you can have knowledge of Christ and never choose to follow him, but that, that's fine, but that's not salvation. 
That's not pure and blameless. That just means you're at fault and you know why. It's important that we grow in our love for God, that we grow in our knowledge and discernment so we can approve what is worthy, what is most worthy, and then we can be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Why? Which means, not why, but then what does that do? That means that you, number four, sorry, number five, which means you are full of the fruit of righteousness that comes from Christ. Right? If we're pure and blameless for the day of Christ, what does that mean? Well, that means that in our lives, we went after the good works that Christ put in front of us. That we lived knowing that God is our witness. So now, because of all of that, because we lived and we followed Christ and we knew that God was our witness, that our lives are going to be full of the fruit of righteousness that comes from Christ. And so all that means is, is when Christ comes back, you're going to have your bags packed and you're going to be ready to go. All right, like you talked about last week, you're going to be a soldier who has been prepared, who has been trained. You're going to have your pack, your pack packed. You're going to be standing there in line, in formation, ready for Christ to come because you did exactly what he says. And you're going to look at him. He's going to look at you and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And that's the life we need to live. Our life is going to look like Christ. When he shows up, we're going to know exactly who he is because you're going to be like, hey, that's exactly how you call me to live. I know that's you. And I know that you're here for me. Why? Number six, why? Why is all this important? To the glory and praise of God to the glory and praise of God. That's why that our love for God needs to grow, that our knowledge and discernment of God needs to grow, that we can approve what is worthy. That's why we have to approve what is worth more because it's the glory of God, so we can be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Well, that's for the glory and the praise of God, which means that we are full of the fruit of righteousness that comes from Christ to the glory and the praise of God. You, you get it? That's why you live. You live to the glory and praise of God. And you're like, what does that mean? It means this that you ought to live in a way that people look at your life and say, man, God's real. Man, God changes lives. They need to look at you and say, wow, God, you are awesome that you could, that you could change a sinful person like you and me. That's what glory and praise of God, that when people look at your life, they look at what God has done in your life and they say glory to God and praise to God. It's happened since before the foundation of the earth. The angels, all the inhabitants of heaven were praising God. They're giving glory to God right now as we speak, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They're singing that. They've been singing it since the, before the beginning of time. They're singing it right now. And Revelation says they're going to be singing it for eternity. And that's our job is to partake in that praise and that glory for God. And the point is, if you don't do it here, you'll never do it in eternity. And so that's why we live. That's why we breathe. That's why we live that's why it's important for us to engage in the work of God. That's why it's important for us to know that God is our witness because we're doing all this for him. We want God to see it, right? If we're doing everything for the praise and glory of God, then we're saying, God, watch me. Watch me as I glorify you. I'm a fragrant offering to you, right? That's how we have to live. Not because we want to be the center stage, but because we know that God is center stage and I'm not going to be ashamed. And I'm not going to be ashamed of God. So I'm going to live for God. And that love, that love is why we can say this, number, point number three, is that we need to let your love for God compel you to live for God. Point number three, let your love for God compel you to live for God. There is no other reason to live for God. You can't live for God out of fear because fear only takes you so far. Should you fear God? Of course. Proverbs says that. Proverbs 9.10, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We have to fear God. But it's not the fear of God that should call you to, to live for him. It's your love for God. 
It's that you love him and you grow in your love for him day in and day out. And that's what Paul is saying here. Paul repeats the same thing in Colossians 1, 9 through 11. If you want to see a prayer that looks exactly like the one he just said, jot down Colossians 1, 9 through 11. He says the same thing to the church in Colossae. Why? Because Paul is saying, this is what it means to love God. This is what you should be striving for as Christians, to grow in your love for God, that you can approve what is worthy so you can live a life that's blameless, full of fruit to the glory and praise of God. Jot down these verses real quick. Colossians 1.10. That's part of that prayer that I was saying just a minute ago that Paul is saying to the church in Colossae, just like he was saying here in the church of Philippi, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's Paul's prayer for the church in Colossae, right? So you can walk holy to God, that you can be pleasing to him, that you can bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God. Is that your prayer, that you would increase in the knowledge of God to bear more good fruit for the glory of God? I mean, that should be your prayer. Write that down. That should be your prayer. If you don't pray that every day, that should be a prayer coming out of the mouth of all of God's saints, that we could be pleasing to him, bearing fruit for him, increasing in the knowledge of him for the glory of him. Joshua 23.11 is another good verse to, to jot down. Joshua 23, 11, be very careful. I love this. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. You've ever, you've ever heard that phrase before? That you need to be very careful to love the Lord your God. That's how much time and effort you need to be giving to God, that you need to be careful. You need to be really intentional how you love God. You don't just love God flippantly like you love cheeseburgers like you love your, your best hobby that you have in the back of your closet. But to love God means to engage in his will, to engage in the work that he has for you to do. And you can't do that flippantly. You do that very carefully. And then lastly, 1 John 5, 3. 1 John 5, 3 says this, For this is the love of God, this is the agape of God, that we keep his commandments. So you want to grow in the love of God? You're going to have to keep his commandments. Those aren't the commandments. They don't save you. Those commandments were proof that you needed him. Nonetheless, those commandments are the same things that he desires in our lives. And so for this, we ought to keep his commandments. To grow in our love for him, we must keep his commandments. And this right here, I love this. And his commandments are not burdensome. Think about that. God's saying, listen, you want to talk about burdensome? The commandments without Jesus, that was burdensome. You, could ne you never lived up to those commandments. And that's what Jesus says. Those of you, do you ever committed adultery? And they say, no, we never did that. You ever thought about a woman lustfully? What do they do? Streak back, oh. And they say, and Jesus says, you've heard it says don't murder. And they're like, we didn't murder. And Jesus says, have you ever hated your brother? Oh. See, they found out real quick that these commandments were very burdensome. But in Christ, we can obey God's commandments, and they are not burdensome. They are those things that are pleasing to God and, and make sure that we can grow in the love of God. So it's important that we obey God's commands, that we don't live as Christians with free, free grace, right? Everybody gets it. Everybody gets grace. Everybody's going to make it. You know, we just got to high-five our way until we get to heaven. That's not, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that few will enter the kingdom of heaven, right? That many will say, Lord, Lord, but only those who obey God will be in heaven forever. And for you, for me, that means that we need to focus on growing in our love for God. That that should be your goal and your commitment starting tonight is that you're going to focus, not a hobby, 
You're not going to pick up some golf clubs and throw it in your closet next week. You're not going to bedazzle a couple pair of jeans this year and never do it again. You're going to focus on growing in your love for God every day by opening his word, by reading the daily Bible reading that we have for you guys, by engaging in God's word, by praying to God every day, by interacting with God. That's why he gives you his spirit. Think about that. He gives you his spirit, lives inside of you. And when you don't know what to pray, guess what? The spirit intercedes for you. Think about that. It's God's desire that you pray to him, that you live in fellowship with him. And then thirdly, that you live in community with those who do love him, that koinonia, right? That you live in community with people who love God. Because if you want to love God more, you're going to have to live with people who do love God. And I'm talking about your friends. I'm talking about you, your future spouse, right? When we're talking about a spouse. You want, to, you want to love God when you're married? You better find somebody who loves God. Because if you don't, you, you're, you're going to fall away. You're going, to, you're going to throw God in the closet. And you're never going to, you're never going to open the door again. Because you're going, to, you're going to worship what God created instead of him. So that's why it's important now, right, before you're married, to grow in your love for God. So that when God does give you someone, that you're going to be ready and prepared but you need to focus on growing in your love for God first. You need to be in his word. You need to be praying. You need to be around a community who isn't afraid to push you to love God more, to keep you accountable to love God more, to look you in the eyes and sometimes say no, because you need to focus on the things that are more worthy. When I, was, when I first became a Christian, I really thought this. You're going to laugh, but I really thought this. I didn't grow up in a really... I didn't grow up in church. I went to church a few times, but... I started going to this Baptist church, but I, I didn't, didn't really listen to the messages. I was, I was like, I was 14, 13, 14 years old. I didn't know. Uh, and I was sitting in there, and I became a Christian at 15, at 4 a.m., in my bedroom, all alone. And uh, so I, my sanctification was super slow. Uh, and anyway, what, what happened was, is after I was thinking deeply about my faith, which, you know, you do at 14 years old, 15 years old, thinking deeply, and I said, you know, do, do I have to live like this every day? Like, do I, like, do I have to be a Christian every day? You know, that's, that's what I thought. I said, every day I got to be a Christian. I'm like, no, I can take, I, I thought to myself, I can take a day off. I mean, people take days off of work. People don't go to school seven days a week. I mean, that, we don't do anything every day. And so I literally, I wrestled with myself. I didn't talk to many people at that time, you know, about my inward thoughts of my faith, but I thought, okay, that makes sense. Logically, it makes sense that I can take a day off in my faith. Right? But as I read God's word and meditate on my word day and night, you know, you know, verses like that came to my mind and I said, Hmm. Turns out you have to do it every day, right? <laughs> right. It turns out that I have to live for God every day. I can't stick him in the closet. I can't take him out on the weekends. I got to do it every single day. But how many times do we practically live that way? Right. I was, I was dealing with some, you know, some great big philosophy as a 15-year-old. But how many times as an adult do you live practically like that? You know what, today, I'm going to take, take a day off. This weekend, I'm not going to church. This weekend, I, you know, I, Friday, I don't want to go to together. I don't want to be in a small group. I just want to do my own thing this week. Now, how many times do we practically live that way? So it's a conversation that although I had as a 15-year-old, and it's a silly question with a, an obvious answer, it's a real question with real practical implications as an adult to say, of course, I have to live for God every day. But the question is, do I live for God every day? A question that you need to answer in your own life. And the, question, the answers are obvious, right? Every day you need to live for God. Every day, you need to realize that God is your witness. And as your love for God grows, you will be compelled to live for God more. Think about that. I don't ask that question in my life anymore because I wake up in the morning. I'm like, all right, today I get to live for God. God is my witness. I want to engage in the work of the Lord today. 
right? That's what happens as your sanctification grows, as your love for God grows. You begin desiring to live that way. And some days, I got to remind myself, today too. Today too, I have to live for God. I don't feel like it. There are decisions I got to make that aren't, that aren't exciting, but I'm going to do it anyway because God is my witness. Pray with me. God, we come to you today knowing that we have to do something very simple but profound and sometimes difficult, and that is that we have to grow in our love for you every day. That we have to grow in our love for you every day, even when the world's love is growing cold, even when it seems like all of these good things have to flee away from our lives, all these passions of the flesh, that they have to, they have to be gone because those things compete for your love and we can never have anything stand in our lives that compete with a love for you. So I pray for everyone here, God, that tonight they can resolve in their life to live for you daily, to understand that they have to engage in the work that you have for them. I mean, that's why we're all still here, God, and we know that, that, that when the time comes, that you're going to come back, and until then there's work to do. It's daytime, and we know that there will be a time when it is no longer day and the work will cease. So God, help us in our love for you do the work for you knowing that you're always there, you're always watching, you're always present. God, and as our love for you grows, God, help us live for you more. God, give us that excitement and that motivation to show the world that as we love you, we will live for you. I pray for this time that our singles are in their groups, that it would be a time of edification, that they would grow in you and they would grow close to one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.